0: Was 2019 the year Britain's post-war far-right finally died? Brexit, mainstreaming and the post-organisational far-right. At times, 2019 felt like a very depressing year, with both major parties in the UK marred by their own racism scandals, anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and the Conservatives dogged by anti-Muslim racism. Brexit loomed large over a polarised and increasingly divided society, while hate crime rose again. Nigel Farage's Brexit party won May's European elections, and December saw a landslide victory for a conservative party led by a man who described gay men as tank-topped bum-boys, compared Muslim women to letterboxes, said that Islam is the problem in the wake of the London bombings, and described non-white people as picking with watermelon smiles. However, in a year when racism was rarely out of the news, one thing was conspicuous by its absence, the traditional far-right. Despite 2019 seeing record numbers of far-right terror arrests The voice of the traditional far-right, in this context meaning to the right of the radical and populist right, was seemingly absent from the public debate. In fact, the traditional far-right in the form of fascist parties like the British National Party and the National Front, long-standing anti-Semitic and racist print publications such as Canda Magazine and League Sentinel, and Holocaust denial publishers like the Historical Review Press have all but died out. These were the organisations, funded by figures such as Nick Griffin and Richard Edmonds, that once loomed large over the political discussions about immigration, race and identity in Britain. In 2019, they were nowhere to be seen, begging the question, was 2019 essentially the end point of the UK's post-war traditional far-right? Just a decade ago, the BNP, a party founded in 1982 by John Tyndall, who started his far-right political career in the League of Empire Loyalists in the 1950s, had a member on the London Assembly and two seats in the European Parliament. At the 2010 general election, under the leadership of far-right veteran Nick Griffin, they stood 339 candidates, dwarfing anything managed by a fascist party in the UK since 1979, when the National Front managed to stand 303 candidates. Last year, in December's election, the BNP stood just one candidate, the lowest since being founded. Both the National Front and the far-right British Democratic Party stood none at all, while an increasingly far-right UKIP mustered just 44, down from 467 just two years previously. A notable exception in all this is the For Britain party, the anti-Muslim party led by Anne-Marie Waters. They increased the number of candidates they stood in the local elections from 15 to 43, and had their two first councillors elected, one of them ex bmp Despite this, the party remains almost completely irrelevant. 2019 also saw the smallest ever turnout for the National Front's decades-old annual Remembrance Sunday march, which this year saw an embarrassing 18 people attend. Last year also saw what currently looks like the demise of Canda Magazine, the longest-running far-right publication in the UK. Founded in 1953, Canda was launched by the notorious anti-Semite AK Chesterton, who went on to be the founding leader of the National Front in 1967. While it has been in serious decline and had financial problems for some time, 2019 saw no issues published and the accompanying website going blank as the result of current editor Colin Todd going to prison for assault causing actual bodily harm. Whether we ever see another issue from this bastion of the UK fascist scene seems unlikely. The influence of these traditional far-right groups has collapsed and as they have failed to attract new and younger activists, we are witnessing the ageing movement literally die out. While these traditional groups and individuals can trace their history back to World War II and sometimes back into the pre-war period, they have increasingly been replaced, especially since 9-11, by other far-right movements. These groups, typified in the UK by the English Defence League, did not emerge directly out of the racial nationalist movement and the post-war fascist milieu. While still being racist and far-right, they emerged from different traditions and often had a narrower focus, namely Islam and Muslims. While fascist parties like the BNP and the National Front sought to co-opt Islamophobia as a route to the mainstream, they were unsuccessful, failing to take the ground occupied by the likes of the EDL and later the less structured ecosystem around Stephen yaxley lennon or Tommy Robinson. In 2018, this movement managed to combine anti-Muslim politics with a grievance narrative of suppressed free speech and a betrayed Brexit to muster the largest far-right demonstrations seen in Britain for decades. However, remarkably and for a host of different reasons, 2019 saw this movement go into rapid decline in the UK, with Lennon and his movement having a terrible year. Lennon had already been banned from Twitter in March 2018, but in February 2019 he was banned from Facebook, where he had more than 1 million followers, depriving him of his primary means of communication to and organising his supporters. Another major blow came in April 2019 when YouTube finally acted and placed some restrictions around his channel, which resulted in his views collapsing. This has left the encrypted messaging app Telegram as his primary means of communication with his supporters, though he has amassed just 42,000 members on his channel so far. In addition to Lennon's social media presence being curtailed, his ability to have an impact last year was significantly reduced by a period in Belmarsh Prison. In July, he was given a nine-month prison sentence after being found guilty of contempt of court, but served just nine weeks of the sentence, during which time he claimed to have been held in isolation for his own security. Increasingly, despite being incarcerated again, the Free Tommy movement that saw such large demonstrations in 2018 made little impact in 2019, and the demonstrations outside Belmarsh mustered tiny numbers. Another low point for Lenin in 2019 was his humiliation during the European parliamentary elections, where he stood as a candidate in the northwest of England. Despite a high-profile campaign, he polled just 2.2%, taking a tiny 39,000 votes and losing his deposit. Other groups in the UK anti-Muslim scene also had a disastrous year, with Britain First, once a major cause for concern, essentially disappearing from prominence. UKIP, previously a radical right party with genuine influence, made the dreadful decision in 2018 to shift further right and team up with a group of right-wing YouTubers, which calamitously backfired and contributed towards disappointing results in the 2019 local, European and general elections. In recent years, a glimmer of hope many on the far right pointed to was the emergence of a British branch of the International Generation Identity Network. However, following an infiltration by Hope Not Hate and a major fallout with the movement's foreign leaders in August, The group split from the network and relaunched as Identitarian Movement England before completely folding in January 2020. Of course, none of this means that the traditional far right is gone forever, or that there won't be a time when the movement once again coagulates and produces a political party or street organisation of note, united around a particular leader. At the moment, however, there is no such thing on the horizon. And while the scene around Lenin has more life in it than that of the traditional far-right and fascist scenes, it too failed to play any significant role in the debates around Brexit, immigration, and identity that were ever present last year. All of this begs the question, why? The most obvious reason for the current irrelevance of the traditional far-right is that Brexit has completely dominated the public debate, and the traditional far-right has had little to offer outside of what is being said by mainstream positions. Unlike previous elections, when debates around immigration often played a central role, ground on which the far-right could make headway, this past year was almost solely about leaving the EU, ground on which the traditional far-right had little to add beyond their own support. Heritage and Destiny, the most prolific far-right magazine still being published in the UK, acknowledged that some far-right parties have stood aside in the elections, quote, recognising that it will be dominated by Brexit issue and that most racial nationalists will wish to use their vote to support a pro-Brexit candidate. In addition to the National Front not standing any candidates, both Britain First and Lennon called on their activists to support Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party with a view to getting Brexit done. The Brexit Party also played a significant role in occupying the far-right's ground on the issue. While the party clearly harbours far-right elements, the Brexit Party is not a traditional far-right or fascist party thereby offering voters a less toxic option than Gerard Batten's UKIP, Lenin's demonstrations and the old fascist parties such as the BNP. However, when seeking to explain the often prejudiced nature of societal discourse in recent years, it is worth noting that just because the old far-right had no direct impact on the tone and content of politics last year, does not mean that their presence over the past decades has not had a residual or cumulative effect. Here, the media and tech companies have played a role by offering platforms to extreme figures such as Griffin and Lenin, thereby simultaneously amplifying and normalising their prejudiced politics. The cordon sanitaire that kept the far right beyond the pale for much of the post-war period has undoubtedly become more porous, letting the politics of prejudice seep into the mainstream, especially around the topics of Islam and Muslims. While the BNP have collapsed and the EDL are now irrelevant, Decades of their hateful messages being heard on our streets, in our newspapers and on our TV screens and consumed and promoted on increasingly pervasive social media has likely had an effect. In addition, while there remains a strong societal opposition to explicit Nazism and racial nationalism, anti-Muslim politics is deemed far more acceptable. This normalisation of Islamophobia may have ironically eroded support for the traditional far right. Just as in 1978 when Thatcher's claim that British people feared being swamped pulled the rug from under the National Front. The normalisation and mainstreaming of Islamophobia may be undermining support for the organised anti-Muslim far-right. Why face all the societal consequences of supporting Lenin when one can vote for a Prime Minister that calls Muslim women letterboxes or read columns by Rod Lidd or Melanie Phillips and Douglas Murray that spread negative views about Islam and Muslims via the pages of mainstream publications? Maybe one reason the traditional far-right is so small right now is because it's simply not needed. Another contributing factor, however, is that the far-right itself is undergoing significant changes, some of which mean that their impact and effect is no longer direct, as with elections and demonstrations, but rather indirect, less obvious and harder to measure. For some years, we at Hope Not Hate have been talking about the challenges posed by the emerging post-organisational far-right, that is, individuals who engage in far-right politics outside the confines of traditional organisations and structures. From the comfort and safety of their own homes, People can engage in far-right politics by watching YouTube videos, visiting far-right websites, networking on forums, speaking on voice chat services like Discord, and trying to convert so-called normies on mainstream social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook. The social cost of activism has often disappeared as anonymous activists make micro-donations of time, money, and effort, not at the behest of a formal leader, but rather as part of a decentralised mass. Impossible prior to the internet, this post-organisational far-right is international, often anonymous, amorphous and extremely hard to combat. It also operates on a deeply concerning scale. While the old far-right, White Nationalism 1.0, as this newer mass sometimes refers to it, in the UK is ageing and shrinking, the post-organisational movement continues to grow. Take, for example, the far-right British YouTube account and magazine, The Iconoclast. Despite not being heard of by most people, the channel has over 217,000 subscribers and over 21 million views. Last year, the channel produced racist and Islamophobic content and grew by roughly 30,000 subscribers. The veteran British fascist Mark Collett, once a key member of the British National Party, turned social media content creator, also had a good year, adding roughly 25,400 new subscribers, taking his total to just short of 100,000. Other British far-right YouTubers, including Collett Robertson, aka Millennial Woes, with over 57,000 subscribers, On the Offensive with over 63,000 subscribers, and Way of the Worlds with 102,000 subscribers. Many of these individuals met offline in 2019 at the new Patriotic Alternative Conference organized by Collet last year. At the more moderate end of the far right is Paul Joseph Watson, ostensibly now independent of US conspiracy website Infowars, who has a staggering 1.78 million subscribers and a remarkable 400 million views. It's extremely difficult to measure the impact that this large post-organisational far-right has on UK politics, not least because we don't know what percentage of their subscribers and viewers are based here. Similarly, there are a plethora of far-right influencers based around the world being viewed here in the UK. However, while no exact number is available, it is extremely likely that thousands, if not tens of thousands of people in the UK are seeking out and positively engaging with far-right content numbers that would have been beyond the reach of the BNP or the National Front in decades past. What direct or indirect influence this is having is impossible to say, but it seems unlikely that such large numbers consuming content of this nature is not having an osmotic effect on our politics. While we may indeed be witnessing the slow death of the traditional post-war racial nationalist far-right, we are of course not witnessing the death of the wider British far-right, but rather seeing it change into a more amorphous, decentralised and thus harder-to-combat movement. We are also experiencing the normalisation and mainstreaming of some far-right ideas, especially anti-Muslim politics. All of this raises serious challenges for the anti-fascist movement and society more generally. Will traditional anti-fascist tactics work against the post-organisational far-right? And will they work against far-right politics in the mainstream? The danger is that during a time when we face new and different challenges, we focus on traditional and recognisable far-right targets, spending disproportionate amounts of time on uninfluential people and groups using methods that don't fit the bill. The nature of the threat continues to change, and so must we. Because if we fight new battles with old tactics, the results will be at best ineffective and at worst counterproductive.